Please turn with me in the Word of God to Ezra chapter 6, the book of Ezra chapter 6. I add my own words of welcome to those already given, and we pray that God will be with us today as we meet before Him, we gather around His Word. Please keep in mind all that's been mentioned, and I just also say that I will be heading to Castle Derg now this afternoon for a 3.30 service, and the ordination of, of two elders there in that congregation. As I mentioned, that event, uh, remember the church in Castle Derg, as you are aware, the Reverend Lindsay Wilson has been ill for the last couple of years and has come to the point where he has uh, decided to take retirement upon health grounds. He just cannot uh, get back into the Word of God, and we want to pray for him, remember him at this time that the Lord will be with him. Reverend Armstrong and I uh, plan to see him this afternoon after that ordination service and spend some time with him, so we remember uh, Dr. Wilson in these days that the Lord will keep his hand upon him. And all our ministers need prayer. Uh, they get sick too, you know, and we need the prayer support of the Lord's people to keep them all before God in these days, even our retired ministers, that the Lord will be with them and help them in all of their times of need. So I want to read a portion here in Ezra chapter 6, reading from the verse number 13. So please open up your Bibles if you haven't already done so, and let us read uh, from verse 13 of Ezra chapter 6. And the Word of God says, Then Tatnai, governor on this side the river, Shethar Bosnai and their companions, according to that which Darius the king had sent, so they did speedily. And the elders of the Jews built it, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido, and they built it and finished it according to the commandment of God, of the God of Israel, and according to the commandment of Cyrus, and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity, kept the dedication of this house of God with joy, and offered at the dedication of this house of God an hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and for a sin offering for all Israel twelve he goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions, and the Levites in their courses, for the service of God which is at Jerusalem, as it is written, in the book of Moses. And the children of the captivity kept the Passover upon the fourteenth day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites were purified together, all of them were pure, and killed the Passover for all the children of the captivity, and for their brethren the priests, and for themselves. And the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity, and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel, did eat and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord made, had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God the God of Israel. And the Lord will bless the reading of these verses to all of our hearts by His Spirit. Could we just again have a word of prayer before we come to the Lord's Word and consider His message for this occasion? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before Thee in the name of Thy Son, our Savior, the one day's man and mediator between God and men, we approach Thee with gladness. We thank Thee that once again we're privileged to be in the house of God, that we are 
Here, by thy grace and thy sovereign mercy, we pray for a settlement of our minds. We pray that thou wilt, as Peter wrote, establish, settle, and strengthen us as we wait before thee and speak unto our hearts as we come around the Word of God. Draw very near, we pray, and grant thy blessing. Grant the anointing of the Spirit of God, even as we wait before thee. Speak to every soul. Bring thy word with freshness, and may there be a time of blessing and power felt and known and experienced in this house as we wait at thy feet. And so, Lord, fill me with thy Spirit, and breathe on me. Cleanse my heart in Jesus' blood, and come near and give help to preach. We pray in Jesus' name for His sake and for God's eternal praise and glory. Amen and amen. I want you to keep your Bibles open here at Ezra chapter 6, and we will focus on these verses that I have read with you. Let me remind you of the fact that the book of Ezra falls into two main sections. Chapters 1 through to 6 trace the rebuilding of the temple of God in Jerusalem. The remainder of the book, chapters 7 to 10, record the arrival of Ezra himself upon the scene and his initial ministry there in Jerusalem. Now, considering the opening part of this book, chapter 1, verse 1, introduces us to Cyrus, the great, as he is called, the king of Persia. Moved by God, Cyrus issued a decree, a decree that allowed the Jewish captives in Babylon to return to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel and other men of God. Upon their return, the very first thing that they did was to rebuild the sacrificial altar and also reinstate the public worship of Almighty God, of course, uh, something vitally important, something that had been neglected for many decades as Israel were in their captivity. Following the rebuilding of the altar, the project of re-erecting the temple ensued, and that began with the laying of the foundation. No sooner was the foundation laid than the work began to experience fierce opposition. The adversaries of God and His people raised themselves against the whole project, the whole work that was being carried out under the hand of God. The ploy of the enemy, of the adversary, was to make false and scandalous allegations with the result that King Artaxerxes ordered the work of rebuilding the temple to cease. That prohibition remained in place for about 20 years, almost 20 years from 536 to 520 B.C. But at that point, another king of Persia, who's mentioned in this chapter, Darius I, issued a new decree permitting the Lord's people to finish the rebuilding of the house of God. And as verse 15 shows us here, that happened in the sixth year of this particular king, this man called Darius. Now, fittingly, the rest of this chapter is dedicated or given over to the event of the setting aside of the house of God for the glory of God. When a building is erected for worship, it is the normal procedure according to Scripture to dedicate that building. And that's exactly what happened here with regard to the temple in Jerusalem. The dedication of the temple that Zerubbabel had led in the building of was not on the same scale, of course, as the dedication of Solomon's temple, which had happened about 450 years before the date in view in this chapter. The reason, of course, is obvious. The resources available in Solomon's day were not at hand in this day, in the building of the second temple, Solomon's kingdom, had a magnificent level of power, of wealth, and prosperity. And therefore, the dedication of the first temple built by Solomon was truly a magnificent event. But 
though that is true, that the resources were not available to these captives coming back from Babylon that were available in the days of Solomon, yet you find that the dedication of this temple, this second temple, was one of solemnity, one of sincerity, just as the dedication of the first temple had been. This passage makes it clear that the hearts and the souls of the congregation of Israel were fully involved in the dedicating of the house of God at this time, in that sixth year of Darius the king. And so when you read the, the passage carefully, you will notice that along with the dedication of the building, there was a genuine dedication of the hearts of the people themselves to the Lord in real earnestness with a true desire to glorify their God. There was a dual dedication. There was a dedication of the building, but there also was a dedication of the hearts of the people of God unto their God, unto their Savior. The physical temple, you see, that Zerubbabel and his colleagues had erected was a picture of the spiritual temple, the spiritual house of God, the people of God. And the dedication of the physical building was a portrayal of the need for the dedication of that spiritual company of the people of God. Learn that lesson. Notice that lesson well. There was a dedication of the physical temple. It was a portrayal of what needed to happen in the hearts of God's people, and we rejoice that it did happen. Believers are the temple of the Lord. They are the house of the living God. They are built together to be a habitation of God through the Spirit. They are formed into a living temple where God is to be served. All of those terms I draw from the Scriptures, all of those expressions are a reminder to us of what the church of God actually is. God's people are His temple, they are His house, they are His habitation. It's in our hearts that He lives. It's among us that He moves. It's through us that He reveals Himself. It's by the church of the firstborn that He is known in society. Those are all truths and solemn truths that are drawn from the Word of God. Therefore, it is vital that the people of God recognize that they understand that the only way by which God will be seen and known and recognized as the God that He truly is, is through those who form the living temple, the house of God, the habitation of God, that is, the people of God. I wonder today, is that truth firmly established in your heart? Do you understand what a Christian, being a Christian, actually is? Do you realize the momentous nature of it? What the design of God in it is with regard to taking you, saving you, dwelling in you by His Spirit, and making you part of that great habitation by which He shows and He demonstrates who He really is. We forget that too easily. And I trust today that as a result of what I want to show you from this passage, it will come home to your heart. It will be written on your mind what it actually means to be a Christian living in this world, the habitation of God, dedicated unto the Lord. You know, it used to be, and I believe it has fallen into abeyance, and it shouldn't have fallen into abeyance in some degree or other, it used to be that Christians understood this, that to be a Christian meant your whole life and every area of it, every aspect of it, was to be dedicated to God. And there were services of dedication. When people were challenged and their hearts were confronted with that, and they would have come forward even in meetings to dedicate themselves to the Lord. And I know that some people have the habit of running up and down the aisle every Sunday. 
But there was something there that's now missing. I feel that. I sense that. That this awareness of living for God in that dedicated matter has dissipated. And anything does and anything goes. Just say you're a Christian, make a decision for the Lord, and then go on living any old way you care or any old way in which you please to live. My dear friend, that is not New Testament Christianity. It's far from it. It's a sham. It's a lie. It's a deception. Because where there's a work of grace in a person's heart, there is at least the desire for that person, within that person, to live his or her life for God. It may well be there are people here today who once were fully dedicated to the Lord. Your time, your aspirations, your strengths, Mention what you will, it was all on the altar for God, as we often have put it, and that's a good term to use. But where are you today? How is it with you today? Have you lost out? Are you cold and careless and, and, and far off with regard to these things? You see, the word for dedication is actually used in this passage. It's used in verse number um, 16, and it's used in verse number 17. To do with the physical building, I know, but it has a very interesting meaning, that word dedication. It's a word that means literally a pressing in. A pressing in. There's a thought there of intensity. There's a thought there of a real purpose. They dedicated that building, and they were telling themselves, this is God's house. Now, I know that God does not dwell in temples made with hands only. He fills the entire universe. But at the same time, He comes down into places. A building like this, or a, a little hall out in the countryside, or wherever it might be, a tent, an open-air meeting, they all become as they're dedicated to the Lord, they become the dwelling places of God. And there's this urgency to have that to be the case, this pressing in. But what about your life? What about your, what about your whole being? Is your life one where there is an intense pressing in consciously, personally, and, and, and individually so that you will be the Lord's? Every fiber of your being Every moment of your day, every desire within you, every aspect of your will, you will tell yourself as soon as you get up in the morning, this is the Lord's. My time, my energy, my efforts, I am the Lord's, and therefore everything else must be the Lord's. That's dedication. That's real Christianity from that aspect of things. And my friend, I pray today that God will shake us up and that laziness and slothfulness will go, that all the carelessness and sleepiness of both physical kinds and also spiritual kinds will be swept away, and they will return into our hearts a desire for God, a dedication to God that is presented in some of the, in many of the features that we find in this chapter. Let us come to it, therefore. Let us look at that subject of a church dedicated unto God that we are shown as we study these verses carefully. There are two main points I want to make. I trust the Lord will help me to get them across to you. Number one, the attitude that motivated their dedication. Look with me at verse 22, and it says there, that they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. And then read on with me. For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And so you notice there the reference to joy. You find it back up in verse 16. The end of verse 16 says, They kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. There was a joyful 
attitude. And I want you to just underline that. That's, that is so indispensable with regard to the Christian life that is really dedicated to the Lord out of joy, an attitude of joy that will motivate that individual to give life and soul and everything over into the hands of God. And so there was a joyful attitude, a joyful spirit, and that motivated them to be a dedicated people. The secret of that joyful attitude is down in verse 22, as I just read. Notice those words, the Lord had made them joyful. Let me say to you today, being joyful as a Christian is, of course, a spiritual quality. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, or one of the fruit of the Spirit, I should say. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, etc. It is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. It's only the Lord who can make a person joyful. It begins when we are saved. If you're not saved, you cannot be truly joyful. You might have something of the joy of the world, which is false and empty, that will evaporate eventually, and very, very quickly even. What you need is Christ in order to possess the joy of the Lord. Because only when you have Christ do you receive the Spirit of God. And only then do you receive the joy of the Lord, along with all the other spiritual qualities that are mentioned in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. And so the Lord had made them joyful. The words are in the past tense. The Lord had made them joyful. Joyfulness was their portion prior to the completion of the temple. We saw this back in chapter 3 when everything began. I've gone through that in my summarizing of the whole events here up to this moment in the introduction to this message. And in chapter 3, and as you think back to that, please remember what we saw there. We found the word together used three times. And we saw that it's used those three times very specifically. Number one, they were serving together. Number two, they were standing together. And number three, they were singing together. I hope you remember that. If not, I, I uh, evoke your memories, I hope, now by what I've just said. One of them is joy, singing together. And now it comes up again, it says, the Lord had made them joyful. And you see, here's the wonderful thing. This joy that they were given by the Lord, it continued in their hearts, it was maintained in their lives right through the trying and the difficult days that they encountered as is expressed in chapter 4 and chapter 5. We've looked at those chapters, we've tied into them. We've seen the opposition of the devil, the adversary at work. And yet, we're now learning that prior to that opposition beginning, the Lord had made them joyful. And then they lived through those difficult days. Twenty years, actually. And during those twenty years, the joy had remained. I know a lot of other feelings were there. They were discouraged. They were disappointed. And they were even very lackadaisical and indifferent, as we saw the other week from that message in Haggai 1 that summarizes uh, the, the fact the Lord had to come to say to them to get on with the work after all those years. But nonetheless, the joy of the Lord remained. You see, brethren and sisters, when the Lord does a work of grace in the heart and He initiates a joyful attitude, what the Lord does, though at times it may wane and be suppressed and not be as vibrant and strong as it once was or it needs to be, yet Joy cannot be altogether killed because it's the fruit of the Spirit. It can rise up, it can flow mightily and powerfully again and through all the labors of the work of God and all the trials of the work of God, it continues there in the hearts of God's people. It was this attitude of joy that moved them to dedicate the house of God and themselves to the Lord. The Lord had made them joyful. He had done it in a number of ways. He made them joyful by His sovereign power. If you look at verse 22, notice what it says, The Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them. That was the one thing that had to happen. I mean, the heart of the king, that's Darius and other men like him. The heart of the king had to be turned. 
It was something that was seemingly impossible. He's a heathen man. He knows not God. He has no liking for the work of God. He has no desire for the work of God. His whole religion is opposed to what he actually decreed to do. I mean, Darius. This man issued a new decree and he said, let these people alone. Let them get on with the building. And the building was completed. My dear friend, that was against everything that Darius was as a pagan individual. And how did it happen? It happened because the Lord turned his heart. And the outcome was that he made his people joyful. Is it not true that if the Lord turned the hearts of our politicians across the face of the nation, uh, men who in themselves have no interest in God, no love for God, no desire for God, no, no thought for the Bible or holiness or, or, or those things that are right and true and proper, if the Lord suddenly turned their hearts, would you not be happy? Of course you would. Otherwise, there'd be something terribly wrong with you. But this is how their joy arose. The Lord and His sovereign power changed the hearts of these men. If you go to chapter 7, we'll be coming into chapter 7 next week in the will of God. But go to chapter 7 here, and the very last verse of that chapter, verse number, uh, almost the last verse, verse 27 of Ezra 7. Read it with me. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. They are rejoicing because it's this same issue the Lord put into the heart of the king to beautify the house of God. Imagine that. He's more used, this king, to beautifying the temples of his gods and erecting the shrines and the idols that he worships. And then suddenly... Suddenly, God moves and the heart of the king is exercised so much so by the sovereign power of God that he beautifies the house of God through giving all that is needed for that purpose. And all of these terms point to us very, very clearly of the fact of God's sovereign power in our lives with regard to the work of God uh, that it, it governs our uh, circumstances, our situations, whether they're favorable or adverse, there is the sovereign power of God over it all, and Christians need to learn that. Romans 8, 28, still in the Bible, you know. What does it say? For all things work together for good to them that love God, to, who are the called according to His purpose. You know, there are Christians who say, no, no, that, that's not everything. Because how could my adversity be for my good? How could my troubles and trials, my sorrows, my difficulties be for my good? And therefore they dismiss that verse. They say it's too deep to understand or it's not for my situation. My dear friend, you've got to come to terms with the blanket statement that God makes in that verse. All things, there's no exception. Your sorrows, your adversity, your trials, your disappointments, your difficulties, etc., 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 as well as the days of sunshine. Somehow or other, they are for your good. They are for the good of those who know God, who love God, who are the called of God according to His purpose. And I want you today to get a hold of that. Do you believe in a sovereign God? who can do the impossible, who can turn things around. My friend, that's what caused these people's hearts to be joyful. That was the secret of it, the sovereign power of God, also the sovereign provision of God. Look at verse 22 again. It says that it made them joyful. He turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them, to listen to this, to strengthen their hands, it says, in the work of the house of God. There's God's sovereign provision. If you go back to verses 8 to 10, you will see why that's His provision, to strengthen their hands. Back to verse 8. Listen to this man, Darius. Moreover, I make a decree, what ye shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods 
even of the tribute beyond the river. Forthwith expenses be given unto these men that they be not hindered. And what they and that which they have need of, young bullocks, rams, lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven. I'll just stop there. It's all about the different supplies that they needed. This is the provision God sovereignly provided. And the point is, the provision came at the very moment, the very point of crisis. You see, when we're in the will of God and we're pursuing the work of God, then we can expect the Lord to provide. From that verse 8, how do we sum it up? From that verse 8, we notice that God sovereignly provides by financing His own will. It was the will of God that the temple be built. These Jews literally don't have a penny. They don't have the resources. So God puts into the heart of that king to make that decree. Give them every penny they need. Give them all the provision required. Give it to them and don't hinder them any longer. My dear friend, that's God at work. This is just not a story. This is the history of what happened in the days of Zerubbabel. This is the account inspired by the Holy Ghost to you and me today, given to us to remind us that we serve this kind of a God, as I put it, who finances His own will. But let me show you something from that passage. Read on into verse number 9, where it says, That which they have need of, bullocks, rams, lambs. Listen to this. For the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, goes on to say at the end of that verse, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors unto the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and of all and of his sons. That is a remarkable statement. This man, this man Darius, is coming to understand something. He's understanding these are God's people. And they have a God to whom they pray through the offering up of the sacrifices that He has appointed. And Darius now says, give them all that they need for their sacrifices and their offerings. And what's his objective there? That they may offer these sweet savors to their God and pray for my life and the life of my sons. Now, I, I would long to hear that been said from Westminster or Stormont or wherever. It may seem very unlikely that it ever would be. I don't know. But I'm simply showing you when God begins to move, He makes His people joyful because He's a God of sovereign power and a God of sovereign provision. He does provide for their needs, but He's also a God of sovereign protection. Again, look at the chapter carefully. Verse uh, chapter 6 here, verse number 7. I showed you this in a previous message, but go back to it with me. Here's sovereign protection. This is Darius saying, Now, let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the, or sorry, the, uh, yeah, and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. That is sovereign protection. He says, let them alone. I mean, I must keep in mind who this is. This is not a Judean king. This is not a member of the house of Israel. This is a man from a, as I've said, from a pagan background. He's a Persian. He follows a false religion, and yet God's working in his heart. And little wonder the people are happy. I, I sometimes wonder what it would take to make us happy. You see, when you look carefully at what happens here, all that was taking place had a single eye to the furtherance of the gospel. That's what you see uh, going back to those words in verse, verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10 where he says, give them all they need to offer their sacrifices and, and so forth. And what you're looking at there is... The, the furtherance of the gospel, because 
all that was going to happen, the, the, the offering up of these sacrifices, the shedding of the blood, it was all pointing to the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. This king says, let this all happen. Let them alone. Let them get on with this work. And maybe he doesn't really understand what he's saying. But my dear friend, God is working to bring about the furtherance of the glory of Christ and the glory of the gospel in those days. And I'm showing you today, therefore, that that's what makes the Christian happy. It's not that the government might give us more money. That's the big cry today. All this money they're handing out. And people don't realize you're going to have to pay it back. Every penny of it. They're not going to give you money for nothing. But you, that's the focus. And they're scrambling and saying, where's this money? Why is it not in my bank account? When's it coming? You see, my dear friend, even Christians can go down that road. Greed and covetousness and an aspiration for more and more and more and more and more. You see, we're under a government that's really a socialist government. It used to be people worked for what they got to heat themselves and feed themselves and so forth. But that's abandoned now. Let's just get everything we get our hands on. And that spirit is abroad, and it's fed, and it's cultivated by decisions of government that are not according to the book. Whatever God gives us, it's for the single purpose. That's the design of God. The single purpose of financing the gospel promoting the gospel. And these people are happy because that's what's happening here. They're not enriched, but God's house is built and God's house is provided for. And in that way, and here's the, here's the point, in that way Christ has been presented. You see, that house looked to Christ, pointed to Christ, but there's something more. Jesus Christ entered into that second temple. It's the very temple that was there when he was born. It's what Haggai says in Haggai 2. The desire of all nations shall come to this house, and this house will be filled with glory. And he said there in Haggai 2 that the glory of the latter house, the second temple, will be greater than the glory of even Solomon's temple. Because into the second temple, this temple that a heathen king helped to provide through the sovereignty of God is the very place where the Lord came and He ministered and He preached and He wrought miracles, etc., etc., and He saved souls. It was in this temple that the publican was saved. It's in the precincts of this temple that the man who lay at the pool of Bethesda was saved. And therefore, everything points to Christ and the gospel and the glory of God. That's the secret of the joyful attitude. The Lord had made them joyful. Look at the stimulus of this joyful attitude. Just a little more of a development of this before I, uh, I get on a little here, if, as time permits me. If you look at verse 16 again, it says, And the children of Israel, uh, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity, kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. Then go down to verse 19. And the children of the captivity kept the Passover upon the fourteenth day of the first month. And verse 22, part A. And kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. In other words, what, they're, what we're focusing on here is the stimulus of their joyful attitude. And that is that there was a provision been made here for the restoring of the worship of Almighty God. Go back to verse 7. It says there, let the work of this house of God. Sorry, that's it's not Ezra 6 verse 7. It's Deuteronomy 12 verse 7. I want you to jump back to Deuteronomy 12 because there's a connection here I want you to see. Deuteronomy chapter 12. And look with me at this wonderful chapter quickly here. Verse number 5. It says this, 
And the background here is that the Lord is telling Israel, this is Deuteronomy 12, that they are not to sacrifice to, their, to other gods and different places. You're not to do that, he says in verse 4. Ye shall not do so unto the Lord your God. Now look at verse 5. But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose, out of all your tribes, to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come, and thither ye shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and heave offerings of your hand, your vows, your freewill offerings, and the firstling of your flock, your herds and your flocks, and there ye shall eat before the Lord your God, and ye shall rejoice. So what is all this? What's that place that's mentioned in verse 5? The place which the Lord your God shall choose. That's the first temple of Solomon where it actually stood on Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered up Isaac, and where Jesus Christ later on in history was actually crucified in that very same area. That's the place that's in view. And that's where the second temple stood. And so notice here in Deuteronomy 12, uh, these verses 5, 6, and 7 that what you find is there's a focusing on their, on their offerings and their sacrifices, and it says, ye shall rejoice. And so what's the stimulus? This leads on from what we've seen about the secret of their attitude. The stimulus, stimulus of an ongoing attitude of joy in the heart of the Christian is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's Christ, His sacrifice, his shed blood, his work of atonement. Please turn back to Ezra 6 and look. I will not take time to read them, but from verse 16 of Ezra 6 right down through until verse number 19, you read there of a context in which the Passover is in view. Verse 19 mentions the Passover. Verse 22 mentions the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what you find, therefore, is this is the sphere that they, or this is the, the stimulus that moved these people into their joyful attitude because they realize that God is on the move. God is working. The gospel is being presented. The glory of God is being seen as all these things come to pass. And within that, there was the displaying of a joyful attitude that moved them to dedicate themselves to the Lord. What do we learn from that? That dedication to the Lord is not some mechanical, legalistic ceremony, ritual. Dedication to the Lord is based on the gospel. You see, I mentioned a while ago, in the old days, people coming forward to dedicate themselves. And then they had to come the next Sunday, and the next Sunday, and the next Sunday. Why? Because the wrong basis was being used. They were being told, if you go forward and you really mean it, you'll live a better Christian life. And that's really to say that we live a better Christian life because of our actions. We're so inclined to fall into that trap that based on what we do, how well we pray, how, how many chapters of the Bible we read every day, how, how often we're out at God's house, based on all that, we will be better Christians. Now, don't misunderstand me. You should pray and you should read your Bible and you should be at God's house morning and evening. Where are you on Sunday evening? Are you here where you're a member or an adherent of this congregation? You see, those things are important. But let me tell you, what moves our hearts to pursue that is this joyfulness that flows out of knowing what the gospel actually is. That God has chosen a certain place. I want you to think about this. In Deuteronomy 12, God has chosen a certain place, just not where the temples will be built, Solomon's and Anne's 
but the very place where Jesus will die. And I say this reverently. Christ could not have died anywhere else but that place that God had chosen. That's it. He was never going to die, never going to give his life up in some land outside of Israel. I mean the nation of Israel. Nor was he going to die in some other city. It was destined that he would die right there. And so the Lord's made all these things clear, and, and, and that's the gospel that the Lord chose to send to Son. He gave Him to die for our sins. He appointed the very place. He appointed the manner in which He would die, a blood atonement, a blood sacrifice, not by strangulation, not by being clubbed to death, but actually giving up Himself as a ransom and sacrifice for our sins. It's all divinely appointed by Almighty God, right down to the very place where He died. And when you get a hold of that in your heart, you say to yourself, was it for me? All for me? Was this all for my benefit, for my redemption, for my salvation, for my deliverance? Yes, my friend, it was. And on that basis, you then tell yourself, to know this, oh, what joy it brings. What real happiness it engenders within the soul. Therefore, I will live for the Lord, I will serve the Lord, I will be dedicated to the Lord on that basis. Not a legalistic basis, not a mechanical basis, not a mere act of the will of the Christian, but on a gospel basis. That's what Paul says to the Roman church in Romans 14. He says, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Then he says, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. What does that mean? Well, the whole context there has to do with people arguing about ceremonial laws and ceremonial days. Yeah, the Lord's Day, but the other Jewish days, feast days, meats and drinks and what the Jews did in their ceremonial system, and the Roman church was divided over this. You know, Christians get divided over the silliest things. And Paul has to address that. And he says, the kingdom of God, that means what God's kingdom really is, what the gospel really is, what saves people, what it really is. The kingdom of God is not ceremony, ritual, Rather, it's righteousness. That's where it starts. The perfect righteousness of Christ. Peace. The peace that we have with God through the finished work. And then joy in the Holy Ghost. Because when we come to Christ and we rest in His perfect righteousness and we're at peace with God, then the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, and only then, and then we have this joy. And my friends, see that today, a proper understanding of the gospel produces and stimulates true dedication to the Lord, ongoing dedication to the Lord. And I say to you today to search your heart, because... I'm not going to go any farther here this morning. At another point here, the activity that marked their dedication, but we'll leave that. We'll not get into chapter 7 next week. If I'm still alive, we'll come back to chapter 6 and look at this other aspect of activity that marked their dedication. But notice this today, my dear friend, is enough for us all to go home with and think about and pray over. Let me ask you again, where are you in your Christian life? Uh, how is it with your experience of God, of grace, of the things of God? Are you going through day after day after day and you have lost out with the Lord and you're unhappy and there's a misery and there is a darkness and there's a gloom and there's a despondency? Uh, and there's no joy there. 
You're not enjoying what you claim to be. You're not enjoying the gospel. That's why you're not happy. That's why if somebody looks at you the wrong way, you're about to jump all over them. That's why you're so easily annoyed. It's because you're not enjoying the gospel. You're not enjoying the Lord. You're not enjoying Calvary. You're not living in rapture over the fact that Jesus Christ came and took your place and died in your stead when He should have allowed you and me to go to hell. And your lack of energy with regard to the things of God. Why is that? Because you're not been stimulated by the gospel. There's no stimulus there. It's all a dead exercise. Now, be honest. I say these things to to provoke you in the right sense of that word, to move you, to search your heart and examine your life and get alone with God today. Go home and get alone with God and see where you are in the light of what we are noticing here about living a life that's dedicated to Christ. And be honest about it. And you may have to get down on your knees and tell the Lord, Lord, I'm the most miserable person on the face of the earth. I'm not enjoying my Christianity. I'm just going through the motions, if even that. There's nothing there that moves me anymore. I've lost out, Lord. My dear friend, you're away from the Lord. You're backslidden. I don't care what you profess or what you say, you're away from the Lord if you're not living in the enjoyment of who Christ is and what Christ does for the soul. You could be very busy. You could be doing all kinds of things. I mean, spiritual things. I've touched on that already, but you've lost out. And it's time to get right with God. 